Uh, there's a few new faces. But again, my name is Marcus. I was an associate pastor here before we left. And uh, this is kind of where I cut my teeth on ministry and preaching. And so we're on, we're on my first suit, and uh, our kids were born here. And so this is our home. This is our family. Um, and it's my privilege and honor and my, my task this morning just to, to bring the word and to, to deliver the word to you. Uh, we're looking forward to the arrival of Gina and Julia. Where, where they are. There's Gina. I, don't, I saw Julia earlier. So I want to remember to thank you as well for that. That is a specific answer to uh, my personal prayers and to our church's prayers. The Lord will, has been arranging all this and will certainly uh, use these, these godly women in the work there. So there's a lot I'd love to share uh, how the Lord is working in many ways. <clears throat> I don't know if there'll be an, another opportunity to do that. But this morning, I just want to direct our attention to what is, without a doubt, one of the most important aspects of the Christian life and one of the most essential aspects of, of the local church. And we want to discuss this morning and, and deliver a message on, on prayer. And prayer is uh, one of the ways in which our church is growing. In our little church in Cladno, I think we're learning. And this message I'm going to preach to you this morning is what I've preached for our church. It's something that we're learning as a church. It's something, I say learning because it's something we have to learn how to do. Uh, on the one hand, we naturally pray. On the other hand, we don't naturally pray. On the one hand, uh, we naturally pray because everybody prays. The reality is that everybody prays. Jews pray. They're constantly praying. Uh, at this moment, there are Jews standing in Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall praying. There are Buddhists that are praying at this moment, gathered in their temples, offering up incense. Muslims are praying. They're crying out to their God, Allah, to do their will. There are millions of people that are praying and that are petitioning and that are speaking and they're using their mouths and their words to communicate something to some God or some idol. Many people are praying. Listen to this quote. Prayer is not asking. It is a longing of the soul. It is daily admission of one's weakness. You know who said that? Gandhi. Gandhi prayed. Do not pray for an easy life. Pray for the strength to endure a difficult one. Sounds Christian. I was Bruce Lee. <laughs> Everybody prays. And so this morning, before we can even just discuss what is prayer, we need to understand what is distinct about Christian prayer. What is different about what we're doing this morning and who we're worshiping? What is distinct about what you do in the mornings when you wake up and you spend time in the Word and in prayer? Because everybody prays. And so we need to understand that, that Christian prayer, though it's distinct in many ways, there are really three distinct things that make prayer, Christian prayer, unique from all other kinds of prayer. And the first aspect is that Christians pray to God the Father. Christians pray to the living God and to the God whom that we call our Father. We say this all the time, Jesus Christ taught us to pray. Our Father, 
who art in heaven. There is no other religion that prays to God as Father. There are many, many people praying to God and to their idols. Hindus have over 30 million gods. And they will never say, God, our Father. They may stand before an idol that has eight arms and say, my monster. They may say something, some profane words, but they do not say, our Father in heaven. Christian praying is distinct because we pray to the God, as Daniel discussed yesterday, as Daniel shared, we pray to the God who's saved us because he loved us before the foundation of the world. To the God who's rescued us from our enslavement to sin and from our darkness. And so we're standing before the living God. We cannot see him. We cannot hear him. We cannot fill him. We cannot touch him. And he is present and he is near and he says, come to me. And we address him as Father. UNICEF estimates that there are 210 million orphans in the world. There are 86 million orphans presently in India, 44 million orphans in Africa. There are 10 million orphans in Mexico. That's more than the population of Czech Republic. An orphan is someone who has no father, no mother, no one to care after them. No one to come to them when they're lonely. No one to come to them when they're tired. No one to come to them when they're weak. But a father is one who is constantly present. The sovereign father of heaven who is constantly near, who is constantly near you. There's no time, there's no place where our father is not available, where he's not listening, where he is not with you. In other words, there are no orphans in the kingdom of heaven. Christian prayer is unique because we pray to our Father who is in heaven and we come to him at at every moment. The pagan thinks that he will be heard because of his many words. If they pray and they fast, or like the the, uh, idolatrous priests in 1 Kings, gashing themselves, dancing, all sorts of atrocious things, thinking that these things will get their attention. But biblical Christian prayer is different because it is not us who get the attention of God. It is God who who has purchased our attention. He has our attention because he has already given us his own. Romans 8 verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with the one he has given, freely give us all things? So we see the question of Christian prayer is not, is God listening, but are we praying? Do we truly believe this morning that God is our Father? That we can go to Him and speak with Him. And that in the most quiet and even silent voice, He knows our words before they're even upon our tongue. Christian prayer is unique from all other kinds of prayer. Not only because we pray to God the Father, but because we pray to God the Son. I'm asked at times, and maybe you've been asked as well, is it okay for Christians to pray to Jesus? We have heard. I've spoken with Jehovah's Witnesses on the street. No, Jesus is not God. We don't pray to him. But we see very clearly in John chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, Jesus says this, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, 
so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we see clearly Jesus Christ tells us if we pray to him, he hears our prayers and we see that Jesus Christ is is God. He is divine authority to answer our prayers. Divine ability to answer our prayers. And he says that, that I will do. And he hears our prayers because he loves us. Because he gave himself up for us. And not only that, but we, we understand here, Jesus is telling us, he answers our prayers because he loves the Father. He answers our prayers. He says, if you ask anything in my name, that will I do. If you ask this, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So Christian praying is distinct because we pray to Jesus Christ and he says, will this glorify my Father? Will this result in him being exalted? Will this result in him being worshipped? Will, ex- will this result in him being praised? If so, I will answer that prayer. This is radically different from the way that all of the prayer functions. Because really, Daniel prayed. He may not have prayed to the living God, but he was praying all the time, help me finish this exam. Help me get the nice job. Help me get the nice life. Those are the longings and the, really the atheistic prayers of his life. Everybody's praying. But you'll never hear the Muslim or the Buddhist or other religions say, Jesus, help me to suffer for your glory. Help me to die well. Don't help me to blow others up, but if I'm blown up, Lord, let me die for your glory and for your honor. Lord, help me to be a servant. Help me to be humble and to understand what it is that you've called me to do. Christian prayer is so utterly distinct because it's really saying, not my will, but your will be done. Lord, I know what my sinful desires are and I know even that I can twist prayer and use it as or seek to use it as an instrument to get me what I want but I understand that Christian prayer is utterly distinct because of really what I'm praying is Lord have your way in me do what it is that you desire to do with my life for your glory and I think you already understand the third aspect that separates all Christian prayer from other kind of prayer because not only do we pray to the Father and not do we pray to the Son but we pray through the Holy Spirit Ephesians 6.18 says that we are to pray at all times in the Spirit. Jude 20 says praying in the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting if I had time we would walk through that passage some more, Jude and even Ephesians 6. But we ask ourselves, what does this mean? How, How can we pray in the Spirit? And I would say the answer to that is maybe another question. How do we walk in the Spirit? And the reality is that as we read the Word of God and pray, that we learn to do all these things, we learn to, to change our actions and the desires behind those actions so that now you're a professor to the glory of God. Now you work for the post office to the glory of God. Now you're a doctor to the glory of God. Now you're turning away from this sin here. Now you're turning to this righteousness here. And, and the only response that you can say, how am I living this life? Why are my desires different? Is because the Holy Spirit is in you. And you're walking in a new way. 
And so this is the reality in prayer. We're praying in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 26-27, where Paul begins to expound, and he, and he explains how the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself, he intercedes with us and for us with groanings too, too deep for words. And if we had time, we could understand more about what this means. But the reality is that God is our Father, and yet He is God. He is completely other. He is completely distinct from us, completely other. And we enter into Him only through the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I believe that Paul is explaining here in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit, He interprets our prayers. He translates our prayers before the throne of grace. Um, these last, we've been planning this trip since September, and I have to, have to say that very selfishly I've been looking forward to being here because I get to speak English, right? Uh, the Czech language is an incredibly difficult and complicated language, and I'm not a complicated man, and so it makes it even more difficult. And so week after week, I try my best to communicate God's word in a foreign tongue, but the first three years, I spoke completely in English, and bless God, Daniel Adamowski translated every single word that I said, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Because if I just stood there speaking in English, only a few people would understand what I'm saying. And Paul is saying here that the Holy Spirit is needed to translate our prayers. I went to the post office. I went to, to buy insurance. I went to this place, and Daniel went with me everywhere. He was the greatest for the first year of my life. He was the physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit, translating everything I had to say. Because otherwise, I speak to these people and they cannot understand me. But with God, the issue is not that he's not intelligent. The issue is not he does not understand my words. The issue is that my words are not worthy of his presence. My words are not worthy of his ear. And that the Holy Spirit takes my sinful, even selfish, ungodly, immature prayers and he translates them before the Father. And the Father says, I understand this. I take these weaknesses. The Holy Spirit dishes them out and he brings them to the Father and the Father understands them. And he accepts them. And the Holy Spirit takes those prayers and he works them. And the Holy Spirit uh, and, the, and, this, and the Son of God takes those prayers and he answers them. And then through our prayers, the Father is exalted. And so what we see this morning is that essentially prayer is Trinitarian. That all three members of the triune Godhead are working interactively, effectually in our prayers. And this is what separates Christian prayer from all other aspects of prayer. And this morning I want to show you how this essentially works. Practically, if you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and we really just want to expound in our English text what is three words. Romans chapter 12, and everyone knows these three words, but I'll just read the entire verse. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Three words devoted to prayer. Do I understand them practically? Do I understand them in my own personal walk with the Lord? Do I understand them 
corporately. And what I want to walk us through this morning is really what, these, what this phrase means, devoted to prayer. And we need to begin with a context. The context of, of this is incredibly important because Paul is not beginning Romans with imperatives. Paul is not beginning Romans with a command to pray. You understand that, that Paul has spent the first 11 chapters explaining the profound implications, maybe the most profound uh, chapters in all of the New Testament explaining what the gospel is and what the gospel does. And after he explains everything from beginning to middle to end, from the sovereignty of God and election before the foundation of the world to our former, at that time, present depravity and enslavement to sin and our ungodliness and then to our proclivity to self-righteousness and working ourselves up to God in our own righteousness, he, he devastates that and he brings us to the place where he says, you're a slave to sin and the only means to salvation is the work of Jesus Christ. And after explaining all of this, he brings us to prayer. The kind of prayer that Paul is calling for Christians to pray and the kind of prayers the pagans pray are as far as each other from east is from the west. Proverbs 15, 29 says this, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. You've read that verse before. Have you, have you thought about what does that mean? That he is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous? What does that mean for me and this moment of my life? Millions of people are praying. Millions of people, millions. There are thousands of Christians this very moment in Los Angeles meeting together and praying and, and hundreds of different religions and people are gathering together. Who is righteous? Who is the righteous one? And if we went to all these different places on the way here, we passed church after church after church and, and, and Buddhist temples we passed and mosques we passed and synagogues, we passed them all. Mega churches and, and churches meeting in donut shops and churches meeting here. And we ask ourselves, who is righteous? Who is God hearing this morning? Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul says, there is no one righteous. Not even one. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none, not even one. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. But we're all, un we're all wicked. We're, there's no one righteous. What is the solution to this predicament? So Paul goes on to expound. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, who does not attempt to bring his own false, empty, pathetic righteousness to the Father, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Romans 9, verse 30, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they did not pursue good works and holiness and godliness. They weren't pursuing Christ. They weren't pursuing the living God. But to those Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. And Paul makes it so simplistic in Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess 
with your mouth, Jesus, as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so Paul roots Christian prayer in in the gospel. He roots prayer in the work of Jesus Christ and in the simple reality that God hears what we say because of Jesus. He does not hear your prayers or my prayers because of who I am or what I've done or what language I'm praying in or how many degrees I have or I don't have. He hears our measly prayers eagerly with joy because of what his son has done. The foundation of all praying. This is what separates all praying. This is what makes any prayer effective. What makes prayer biblical and effective is Jesus Christ. That if Jesus Christ is not in you and you are not in him and he has not saved you, you cannot come into the presence of the living God and you cannot speak with him. But if you have Christ, he will hear you. Charles Spurgeon, we saw his beautiful portrait this morning. He said, remember the Lord will not hear you because the arithmetic of your prayers, he does not count their numbers. He will not hear you because of the rhetoric of your prayers. He does not care for eloquent language in which they are conveyed. He will not listen to you because of the geometry of your prayers. He does not compute them by their length or by their width. He will not regard you because of the music of your prayers. He does not care for sweet voices nor for harmonious periods. Neither will he look at you because of the logic of your prayers. Because if they are well arranged and compartmentalized, they are still from the mouth of man. But he will hear you and he will measure the amount of the blessing he will give you according to the divinity of your prayers. If you plead the person of Christ and if the Holy Spirit inspires you with zeal and earnestness, the blessings which you ask will surely come to you. Jesus Christ is fundamental and he is the only one that makes our prayers effectual. The gospel is fundamental and is the context of our imperative this morning. And it's only in Jesus Christ that prayer is truly prayer. And that prayer is truly prayerful. But there is one other aspect that makes Christian prayer distinct from all other Christian praying. And I believe that it's not simply derived from the context, but that it's it's derived from this very phrase. When we think of prayer and when we talk about prayer, uh, you and I, we naturally begin to think about prayer as a singular personal event of the Christian or aspect of the Christian life. How is your prayer life? We, we ask ourselves, we ask one another. How is your prayer life? How is your walk with God? But that's not essentially what Paul is saying. In fact, if I asked that question this morning, how is your prayer life? What Paul would really be asking this morning is, Cornerstone Bible Church, how is your prayer life? Because this, this command, this imperative is not addressed to individuals. It is addressed to the corporate body. It is addressed to the local church. And the reason I say that is because it's rooted in verses 1 and 2. We know these verses so well. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What I want to point out initially here is the phrase we know very well, present your bodies. But I want you to note that he says, present your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. In other words, what I think Paul is getting at is that he is speaking to the individuals that make up the whole. He is speaking to the individual members of the church at Rome who made up the body of Christ. He says in chapter 12, verse 3, continuing on, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In other words, if the whole congregation is going to be united as a living sacrifice, then each person, each individual member of Cornerstone Bible Church has to understand his function and his role in the body as a whole. That's why he says in verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. He's saying, I want you to understand how important you are to the body. I want you to understand how important you are to the body. But he is saying something very specific and important here. He is saying that what gives a person in the body his individuality, his distinctness, is that he is distinct in the body, but not from the body. What makes you, particularly each and every single one of you, so important to the life and the health of the, of the local church here is not your distinction from, your betterness and distinction from the rest of the church, but your usefulness in the body of Christ. How you find your value as an individual member is your function in the local church. So an arm is an extremely important member, an extremely important aspect of the body. But if it is cut off, no one thinks highly of the arm. If it is cut off, it is useless. And so the arm is incredibly important, but it finds its distinctiveness and its usefulness only as all of its ligaments and members and veins are attached to that living body. And so if you rip the arm off the body, it does not turn into a new body. Now it's dead and it's useless. Paul's saying that's, a, that's an illustration of the church. Which is why he is saying, first of all, don't be proud. You are not more important than any other aspect in the body. Your usefulness and your distinctiveness is how you are used to build up the body. And then he goes on, verse 6 to exhort each person in the church to use their giftedness to build up the body of Christ. Now, we obviously take all of our functions, most of us do. We take all of our body working so effectively, we take it for granted until it begins to not work as we would desire it to work. And then we begin to see 
when your body does not begin to work the way that it ought to work, then you begin to see the devastating effects it has. And Paul's saying, if the body of Christ does not work the way it ought to work, and if each individual doesn't even see their own distinctiveness and their usefulness and are not ministering as they ought to see, you're going to see the devastating effects of a body that doesn't understand how it ought to work. As every person in the body of Christ functions, then you will see the beauty of the local church and the beauty of what it means to be a living, unified sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so then we continue on and we see the, the nearer context in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy in the local church. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. Cornerstone Bible Church in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. So now we begin to see he is not talking about thanking God for your breakfast or praying for your exam. Those are all good things. But he is talking about prayer in the function, in the body of the local church. And here we see that really our hope as a church is, yes, the word, but it is also prayer. Prayer is the means that Christ controls the body. Prayer is the means that the head directs the body. Prayer is the means that the body submits itself to Christ our head and receives from her our nutrition and receives from her our instruction, the will of Jesus Christ. The prayer is the spinal cord of the church. And if that cord is cut, the church is paralyzed. Prayer is the lifeblood of the church. Prayer carries strength from Christ to all of its members. And that is why Romans 12, 12 is talking about corporate prayer. He is talking about prayer in the local church. He is showing us that prayer is what will sustain and what will help the church to function and grow and live as she ought to live. Prayer is life support for the church because apart from him we can do nothing. Now there are numerous uh, New Testament terms defining the word prayer. Paul uses the very basic word prayer. It's nothing astounding. <laughs> We really need to, uh, to define the word prayer very little because, as we already said, everybody prays. Right? Every religious person prays. And when your plane is going down or you've been captured by the Taliban, the atheist prays as well. You don't need to explain what prayer is. Everybody naturally knows what prayer is. Everybody has an aspect and everybody has some sort of an idea of what prayer is. But the, what we want to look at here is what Paul says, be devoted to prayer. The word there means to stay by, to persist at, to remain with, to continue in. And this adjective is only used in the New Testament 10 times. And five out of 10 times, 50% of the time this, this word devoted is used, it's in connection with prayer. Acts 1 verse 14 it says, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Acts 2 verse 42 says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Acts 6 verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Colossians 4 to where Paul says again, 
devote yourself to prayer. And lastly here, Romans 12, 12, devoted to prayer. And we see how important this is because here he has explained the manner in which we ought to pray. This is the approach the local church ought to have towards prayer. We ought to be devoted to prayer. We see how this word, what it means in the, in the, the, the way the rest of the New Testament uses the word in Mark chapter 3, verse 9. Nothing profound, but he just says, and he told his disciples that a boat should be ready for him. The word there is the same word, devoted for, to him. In Acts 10, verse 7, where we see a centurion, Cornelius, explaining about his own servants. He says, when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier. One of his soldiers was a devout man. He was dedicated to him. And we see as well in Romans 13, verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, to the collecting of taxes. In other words, they spend their waking hours counting money. They spend their waking hours sending out a summons. They spend their waking hours knocking on your doors. Give us some money. And he's saying that just as tax collectors are devoted to the collection and the counting of money, just as the IRS is devoted to receiving your tax information, so this is how we ought to be to prayer. We ought to be like Zacchaeus, devoted. The word simply means to be at it at all times. It does not mean that you're supposed to be here all at all times, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. But it really means how we are supposed to strive and to seek after God. And, and if I would say anything to you this morning, this is what I would say to Cornerstone Bible Church, and this is what I had said to our church, and this is what I would say to any church like yours and like ours, where our problem is not that we're not devoted to the Word. My fear this morning is not that Pastor John is not going to be devoted to the Scriptures. My fear this morning is not that Cornerstone Bible Church is going to stray from expository preaching, that it's going to stray from taking the Word of God as the whole counsel of God. My concern for you, my concern for us, do we understand what it means to be devoted to prayer? And my answer to myself is no. My answer for our church is we don't understand this. We understand what it means to be devoted to this book. We do not have a clue what it means to be devoted to prayer or very, very little idea. We have not been raised in a context of local church ministry where we have been taught what it means to be devoted to prayer. And I do not say that with arrogance. I say that as I'm part of the problem. But Paul is seeking to, to get the local church in Rome on track and he wants them to understand how important prayer is to the local church. Um, the last two years, we are trying to understand what this means right, as a local church. We have uh, a mega church. We have about 30 people on a good day. Um, God is doing a, a really a profound, wonderful work. Um, the men that are here with me this morning are humble men and they're godly men. They are choice servants of the Lord. And what makes Daniel and Alish so precious is not simply um, the quality of their lives, but it is the reality that there are very, 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 very few men like them in the Czech Republic. 
There are nearly no men like them in the Czech Republic. And yet, in the last few years, as we're learning to pray, we see God, he's hearing our prayers. I I really could spend the next hour detailing the way the Lord has answered specific detailed prayers. Uh, The coming arrival of Gina and Julie is specific answer to my prayers. The Lord providing Daniel with a godly girlfriend in a country where you could spend your whole life and never find a, a suitable partner is an answer to my personal prayers. In seeing the way the Lord is just simply uniting our little church and growing people and saving people. Using one family that had, had incredible ungodly lives, third marriage, and, and, and horrible debt, and then this woman hears the gospel, wants nothing to do with it, and that next week listens to the Bible on CD, repents and gets saved. And then a year later to see her husband, who had never heard the gospel, had, had read three books his entire life, he repents and gets saved. And then to see them a year later uh, in the forest, they meet a lady that's been living in, the, in her car all by herself in the dead of winter. They take her home, they feed her, they clothe her, they wash her clothes, they, show, they do the best they can, they show her the Jesus film, and she gets saved. And then this old, this woman who's 73 years old and her grandson, 19 years old, comes and lives with her on the weekend and she brings him to church and he begins to come to our church and after five months of just hearing the Bible and watching the church and watching them serve and hearing him say things like, if, if everybody in the world was like these people, the world would be so much better. This young man who had never met a Christian, who had never heard the Bible, who had never heard the gospel and in, in less than five months to watch him go from an atheist to a, a born-again believer. And then within the last couple of weeks, he is now praying for his lost roommates and the people in his dorm. And these are specific answers to our prayers. We're watching with our own eyes. I, I, would, I would never say we're, we're now seeing the Lord work. He's always been working. The Smiths were there for 13 years and he was always working and he saved men like Daniel, but so few people. But now we see with our eyes visibly the way he's working. And I believe that part of it is simply that we're learning to apply what this means. We, we meet, this is what we do right now as a, little, as a little church. We meet in the mornings like you do. We meet at 9 o'clock. From 9 to 10, we have an equipping time. We have a brief 10-minute break. And then from 10 to 11.30, we have our worship hour. And then from 11.30 to 12.30, we just have a break. We just fellowship. We talk. We interact. We do what we need to do with one another. And then from 1.30 to around 2.30, we just pray. We just get in a circle and we just pray and we just pray. And I want to tell you, it's not easy. This is probably one of the most difficult aspects of trying to shepherd our church is we're trying to learn how do you, and it just keeps getting bigger. It just keeps getting bigger. More people are being added. How do you manage this? But what I was thinking on the way over here is even in the plane, What do we see in the beginning of Acts? We see there's 120 people gathered in this room. They're packed in there. And what are they doing? I don't understand how it worked. I don't know. But they were praying. Corporately gathered together, praying. It was an aspect of their worship. That's what Acts 1, verses 12 through 15 says. They were praying. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. Boom, 3,000 people repent and get saved. Holy Spirit comes upon them preaches the gospel, they're saved. Acts 6 verse 4, it says, 
The apostles, they're overwhelmed with the burdens. There's 3,000 people. You have no local church, and overnight you have a church, you have a mega church. And so there's all these aspects going on. There's all these things. There's difficulties, administrative details. They're tempted to, to side the word in prayer. And what, what do they do? They say, well, no, we're making a stand right here and right now. There are so many details. There are so many things. We cannot not pray. And so it says, the word kept on spreading. They kept praying. We'll devote ourselves to the ministry and to the word. And then three verses later, the word of God kept on spreading and a number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And even many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Saints, what is the key to church growth? What is the key to church growth? It's it's prayer. It's faithful, earnest, yes, organized corporate prayer. One of my, I don't want to call it a hobby, but one of the things I've loved to have been doing since we've arrived at the Czech Republic is I'm just trying to read as much as I can about Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission. Not just about him, but all the many, many faithful, godly men and women who devoted their lives. But Hudson Taylor was, was a man of prayer. And, and, and the reason why we can understand why the Lord had done so much through the China Inland Mission, I think, is simply based upon prayer. He said, since the days of Pentecost... Has the whole church ever put aside every other work and waited upon him for 10 days? Has the church set aside all that burdens them so that they might see the Spirit's power mightily manifested? We give too much attention to method and machinery and resources and too little time to prayer. You know, at this time, you and I as Americans are pouring our lives, our time, our money, our effort into the Czech Republic. But there was a time when the Czech Republic, they were, they were the America. They were the, the missions machine. They were pumping out missionaries. They were spreading the gospel all over the world. It's called the Moravian movement where we lived in Downey. 200 yards from my house, there was a, there was a Moravian church. Now it's dead. Now it's liberal. Now it's empty. But these men and women were devoted to the gospel two, three hundred years ago. And God did a radical, radical work through these Moravian Christians who left their country, now the Czech Republic, to flee persecution. The Moravians began with 24 people. They gathered together regularly to intercede and to pray. As a local church, they began, and as they continued to grow and increase, as more people were moving into the area, they kept adding, and they began a 24-hour prayer chain, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and it lasted for over 100 years. And in this band of brothers was devoted not just the preacher, not just the elders, but men, women, and children from every aspect of life. Praying, candle makers, wheel makers, cart makers, tent makers. All from different aspects. One thing they had in common. They knew, they believed that prayer was effective. That's why prayer is so hard. Because you have to believe. When we're sitting there praying in our little circle, I don't feel anything oftentimes. I'll be very honest with you. A lot of the times we're praying and I'm like, that guy's praying too long. I'm hungry. 
Lydia, shh. <laughs> Just three more hours, okay, come on. Right. Prayer is not some super spiritual thing. What it is, it's hard work. It's agonizing work. You know what I mean? It's hard enough as, a, as an individual. As a local church, as a corporate church, it's, it's very difficult. And yet Paul says it's, it's crucial. In 100 years, these modern Czechs, former Moravian people, they sent out 300 missionaries all over the world. From this one little place, 300 missionaries. How can you explain that? Do you know how much it costs you to keep me on the mission field? Do you know how much resources are spent every year to keep one missionary and his family on the mission field? The time, the money, the effort. 300. But here's the problem, and this is what is so helpful to me. I hope you're amazed. I am. When I read about the China Indian Mission, when I read about George Mueller, I'm blown away. But that's the problem. Because the problem is that I treat them like they're different than me. I treat them that they had something that I don't have. Well, the reality is they did have something I don't have. They had devotion. They didn't have more Holy Spirit. They didn't have more access to the Father. They didn't have more time. These men and women were working nonstop. The the Moravians were crazy They were Puritans. They're up at four in the morning. They're praying. They're reading the Bibles. Then they're working all day long. Then they come home. Then they're milking the cows. I mean, they were busy. They were devoted. They were determined. And my problem, the local church's problem, is we simply want to think they were exceptional because it gives us an excuse. It gives me a way out. What I want to tell you this morning, that same outpouring of the Spirit, that same power, that same ability to see the mighty work of God, it's available to you and to me. How are we going to go forward? How are you going to go forward after all you have been through as a church? How are we going to go forward in the Czech Republic where every false gospel is just exploding in that country? And almost every church is either liberal or it's just going downhill with a weak, soupy gospel. How do you go forward? How do you fight an enemy that you cannot see, that you cannot touch, that you cannot taste? How do you fight a spiritual battle? Hudson Tether says, there's only one way to go forward. And is upon your knees. The answer to church growth is not programs and, and this and that. Yes, organization is important. Organization so that we can do the work of ministry. And here we see so that we can do the work of prayer. And I'm convinced that one of the greatest dangers to our churches today is that we have such incredibly capable men the men that our churches in America are pumping out today, they are more equipped and prepared than so many other men have ever been. 
There are so much more books. There are so many materials. Everything that, that a Christian could ever want is available. But the greatest need that is available is prayer. And it is that aspect, I believe, in their churches that is most quickly sidelined. And so that is my prayer this morning. That is my prayer. That is my impassioned plea. What I just want to simply encourage you this morning is to to learn what Paul is saying. This is what I believe you're learning. This is what we are learning. It is not easy, but it is so important. It is so vital and necessary to the local church. You know, we look at the disciples, and I think we need to look at them more often for conviction. They were with Christ for three years. They heard things that we will never hear. They saw things we will never see. They saw examples in humility. They had the most highest and the most intimate personal training and discipleship that a minister of the gospel really could ever, ever receive. They studied under the divine tutelage of Jesus Christ. And yet, we see that these men, they, they turned the world upside down, as the unbelievers were saying. They turned the world upside down. And we have to ask, well, was, it their, was it their boldness? My answer would be, yeah. Where did that come from? Was it their powerful preaching? Yes. Where did that come from? Was it their radical giving? Barnabas selling off entire fields to minister to those in the church who did not have. Where did that come from? Where did that aspect, that manifestation, that love, those characteristics of the Holy Spirit come from? And I believe as we look, the simple answer is prayer. They were turned face down in prayer. And I believe that's why we, me, why I lack boldness so often, why I lack wisdom, why I see little in conversion is because we do not pray. And what I can testify this morning is that though the work at this moment is, it seems so insignificant in the Czech Republic, God is doing a mighty work and we make no boasts. What I simply want to say is we are convinced that Every week, you can, you can feel the church growing. You can see people's lives changing. And we're convinced that the Lord is hearing our prayers. We don't get done. We don't, we don't fill. We didn't fill the building shake. I would, love that. I would love that to happen. It's never happened. We don't get done and there's no glowing. There is not even this great power and energy flowing through us. Oftentimes, you're just, it's been long, you're tired, I need to just stop speaking Czech, I need to speak in English, I need to go take a nap. And that's the power of prayer, because we just, we just go home. We go to bed. We get up the next day, we do what we need to do. And the Holy Spirit is working. The Holy Spirit, through His Word that was preached, through His Word that was shared, He's working. And you're shopping and you're doing something that's totally unspiritual. But the Holy Spirit is still working. And he's changing people's lives and he's convicting them. So that you show up next Sunday and there's Tonda. Last week he was an unbeliever. Last week he was 
Who knows what he was doing? Smoking, downloading porn. And this week, he's sitting in the, in the congregation and he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he's praying in front of 30 people, confessing his sins. Cry out to Jesus Christ. And people are weeping. Why? With joy. Why? Because he heard our specific prayers. And saints, I know if you had the opportunity to come forward, you could testify as well that God is hearing your prayers. So I just want to encourage you all the more to pursue this amazing grace, to pursue this great privilege. That if you are born again, you will pray. If you are a Christian, you will pray. And if this is a Christian church, a Trinitarian church, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to be exalted and to working through the local church, you will pray. You will be devoted to prayer. That is my encouragement to you. It's not easy. You will have to discipline yourself individually. You will not be devoted to a church corporately if you're not devoted to church individually. You have to deny yourself. You'll have to take up your cross. You will have to buffet your body. You will have to rid your life of everything that is distracting you and taking you away from praying to the living God. And you will have to fight for the rest of your life. You will never, ever, ever be used to praying. You will never, ever get to the point where you will say, prayer comes naturally. Never. I am still uh, a young man. I understand that. And I cannot stand before you as some seasoned aged pastor. By the grace of God, I can tell you that I'm learning what this means. I'm learning what it means personally to be devoted to prayer, and it's not easy. But I can tell you it is so fruitful, and it is so refreshing to be in the presence of the living God and to know that he hears our prayers and that he hears yours. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you Thank you that you have given us this wonderful privilege. I do not understand why you have made it this way. Sometimes I, if you would just let me see you, if you would just let us see your presence, it would be so much easier. But that's not the way it works. That's not how you have ordained it. That's not how you've planned it. Prayers by faith, praying at all times in the Holy Spirit. And as Judy says, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. And so, Lord, this moment, we cannot see you. We cannot hear you. We, we cannot touch you. But we believe. We know you hear. We know you answer. Everything that has taken place in this church, even over the last five years, you have led and you have guided. You have been faithful. You have heard the prayers of your people. Help us now to learn what it means to be devoted. Help us to learn as churches and let us see with our own eyes even more so how powerful you are, how faithful you are to answer your prayers. Lord, we love you this morning. I thank you for Cornerstone Bible Church. I thank you for my family. I thank you for these dear men and women. Please help us. Please help them to experience the great power and the freedom we have to approach you in prayer. We thank you again in your name we pray.